Well, it's great to be back uh, with you today and to see uh, different uh, faces. Thank you for the great privilege of, of being back for these uh, two weeks. It's really helped me just to, well, encourage me um, just to be here. And I genuinely mean that. I wouldn't say that uh, if it weren't true, just to see the life and health of uh, Redeemer. One of the risks when a church is planted from another church is the relationship between the churches can get kind of tense. That's not uncommon for all sorts of reasons. And that has not happened, and I'm delighted um, at that. But let's, let's think about Chalmers and Redeemer as much as Redeemer and Chalmers from now on. There comes a point when the relationship is one of partnership. There are formalities of sending and going and being supported. And that, the support doesn't change. It just becomes mutual. And partnership is exactly what exists between the two churches. I was in Chalmers at 9 o'clock, um, which is too early for a service. Do you know there's a massive difference between 9 and half 9? It's at least four hours. <laughs> and uh, I was there. We were dedicating um, a, a child, Sophie Tooth, Doug and uh, Sydney's uh, little one, before they go off to London. And we were looking at the last chapter of Romans, Romans 16, which is full of names. And uh, if you wanted a title for that chapter, it would be Partnership. As Paul talks about different churches. And the kind of coincidence or providence that Bible passages just seem to be so relevant to the circumstances around us. We need to clock that and not doubt it. And I've been very struck here that, and I suspect these decisions are made long back in the ether of planning, that Luke chapters 9 and 10, at the point of transition, both for you and for us as a church, there are no more pointed or focused chapters in the Gospels on mission and on the commissioning and of the sending out of people into the harvest fields. It is a, a strikingly relevant section of the Bible. And remember Luke's purpose, as I switch on the stopwatch, it's a good advice, Sam, for you when you get to be an old minister like me. You switch on the stopwatch about four minutes in. <laughs> it's amazing what happens. It's, just, it's only four seconds. Um, one of the, uh, the purpose of Luke's gospel is to give us certainty. certainty about what we're about, what we're to do, and really certainty about what you are and what we are as a church uh, along in Morningside. One of the downsides of COVID, and there are many, um, is the absence of physical Bibles in churches, especially if you are an oldie like me. You know, I keep saying now I'm an oldie and no one contradicts me anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, you know you're an oldie when you're in a high-risk category for a jab. One of the things we miss is the physical Bible, especially if you're not adept on your phone. And really, when you have a Bible open or when you have a phone, you're able to kind of get a passage in its context a little more um, easily. Uh, Bible apps, though, on phones do work pretty well. And context is really important. The bit that comes before and the bit that becomes after just tells us what the bit in the middle is all about. Now, let me just get the big picture in our minds. I want us to sort of sit above 
Luke's gospel for a minute. Just get the big picture of 9 and 10, chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 9, Jesus says twice, very clearly, I must die. I must go to Jerusalem and die and then be raised from the dead. There's all sorts of stuff about, no, you don't, no, you don't. And he says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And uh, the, the point being made by Luke, the author, is the cross is the very heart of Jesus' mission. And if you are looking into Christianity, if you're studying it, some of you are, you'll learn very quickly that the very center of Christianity is the cross of Christ. And uh, the cross, the symbol of the cross, is the dominant symbol for uh, Christians. So, chapter 9, Jesus uh, focuses on the cross as the heart of his mission. And then in chapter 9, verse 51, it's a striking kind of turning point in Luke's gospel. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So everything is on the way to Jerusalem, chapter 9, verse 51. People call it a kind of journey narrative or journey section in Luke. Everything is heading towards Jerusalem, the cross. And right away, if you see at the very end of chapter 9, Jesus faces rejection. So it's very interesting how that note is struck again and again. Rejection. Why is Jesus rejected? by this village because he is going, Luke records, to Jerusalem because he is going to the cross. And that's uh, still the case. Jesus, rejected by many people then and still is, his saving death seen by many then and now is not the power of God for salvation but is foolish. And then chapter 9, the very end uh, of it, focuses on the cost of following Jesus. Now, I think, given what follows at the beginning of chapter 10, that the cost of following Jesus that he has in his mind is the cost of following Jesus into his mission. And I think it's right for me to say that to you, to encourage you. Let me, let me raise some of the questions that many of you had to answer, say, 18 months ago. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to leave friends and go? Are you willing to leave stuff and go? Are you willing to leave a church which has 350 people that if you want a kind of rest, it's dead easy to find it? Are you willing to go out into his mission and not look back? Well, I, I think I want to, and rightly, and without saying something that's not true, I want to encourage you that that is what many of you have done. It's wonderful, though, that there are folks here who have joined since then. Does that not make it worth it, what you have done then to go? Of course it does. People will become Christians. People are becoming Christians. And then into chapter 10, where we got to last week. Um, the overarching theme of chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, is our commission into Jesus' mission. And that's really helpful. To, Chalmers did not commission you as a church. Jesus commissioned Chalmers. Jesus commissioned you. We just uh, all worry together about the finances and the charity stuff, which is no bad thing. But it's a, it's a divine commission that's behind uh, it all. And if... If weakness and struggling and difficulty and cost is a keynote of chapter 1, then the keynote of chapter 10, 1 to 24, is power and progress and privilege and 
stuff will happen. We saw last week that Christian mission is the verbal proclamation. In other words, speaking. What's Christian mission? Speaking the offer of peace or reconciliation to God through the forgiveness of sins achieved by Jesus' saving death. So if you're not a Christian yet and you're engaged in a church family and uh, you might be here listening, you might be studying Christianity Explored or something or watching online, what you are hearing from the Christians in the church is that Jesus Christ offers you peace, which is reconciliation to God, through the forgiveness of your sins achieved by Jesus' saving death. Now, I warrant that is what you're hearing. And that's what you should be hearing. That's what mission is telling you that, speaking this message. And that's so important because it's through hearing and believing that people are saved for eternity. Let me just say that again. It's through hearing and believing that people are saved for eternity. What saves us for eternity is the message that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is achieved and therefore reconciliation to God. That's what saves us. Now, experiencing the kindness of Christians or the love of Christians or experiencing the fellowship of a Christian church is a great thing. But it doesn't save us. It brings us into the company of people who are saved, who think, think and tink, uh, tick differently. Loving church family blesses, benefits, gives credibility, gives persuasiveness to the message. But it's only and always the explanation of the gospel and the faith in Jesus that saves people. The husty you see in the end of the day be a decision between an individual and Jesus Christ. Now, let's just roll into our, our passage. You see Luke's purpose. See what he's saying. So this is kind of a high-level view. The cross is at the heart of Jesus' mission. Following Jesus into his mission is costly. We are commissioned by him into it. Yes, it's costly, but it's a privileged mission. There is power. There is promise. And Christian mission is speaking the gospel. Therefore, it is no surprise what comes next. The bit that Robbie read Luke wants us to be certain. As those sent into mission, and Luke wants us to be certain as those who are engaging with a church community, looking into Christian things, Luke wants us to be certain exactly how people are saved. So think of this life, three score years and ten, a little bit more, a little bit less. And then eternity. Eternity. How might I illustrate that? That's this life, that's the life to come. I mean, of course, it goes on. That, that is what's at stake. Logically. And, and getting right for that bit 
for forever matters. And therefore, I want to know, as a Christian minister, you want to know as a Christian church, you want to know as a Christian, you want to know as someone looking into Christianity exactly how you are saved. That matters a great deal. And so what uh, Luke does is he teaches us two things. I'm going to do one, and Sam will preach on the other next week. Today, this passage that Robbie read, salvation is by grace alone. I think that's what Luke's teaching. And then next week, uh, so we've got the parable of the Good Samaritan today, the most famous parable ever, apparently. I don't know how Google knew that, but it confirmed my suspicion. <laughs> and then next week, that if you're being a Christian, you'll, you may well know the story next week, Martha and Mary. One of them, I always get them mixed up which one is which. One of them is doing stuff. The other one is just sitting there listening to you. Listening to, and the point is, salvation is by grace alone. That's this week. Next week, that comes by listening to Jesus, not doing stuff. Okay. So, salvation by grace alone. Passage Robbie read, verses 25 to 37. We find Jesus engaging in personal evangelism. Uh, he's in dialogue with a lawyer. Um, lawyer means here, I think, an expert in the Jewish law, the scriptures of the Old Testament, and in particular the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Ex, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, and this kind of setting, the Lord Jesus engaging in personal evangelism is not uncommon. And at this point, I was listening to a few sermons on this. There's a kind of divergence for 10 minutes about how personal evangelism is dialogical and all the rest of it. So we'll not go down that. And maybe it is, but that's not the point here. He's just chatting to someone. This is personal evangelism. So, for example, he does the same thing with Nicodemus, with the woman at the well in John's Gospel, the rich young ruler, just one-on-one. Perhaps the closest parallel is Jesus' conversation with a scribe, another expert in the law recorded in Mark 12. Uh, he comes up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, uh, what's the greatest commandment? But the difference between that occasion and this is that on that occasion, the man really wanted to understand. But here, the fellow who questions Jesus uh, wants to trick him, trap him, undermine him. Like many or most of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, he is hostile, intent on discrediting Jesus. Why? It's a good question. Why are the religious leaders intent to discredit Jesus? I think because of what Jesus says to everyone. So whether you are a religious leader, whether you have a lectern to stand behind and talk for 30 minutes on a Sunday with no one allowed to talk back, that only happens in this part of the world. Or whether you're sitting listening, whoever you are, Jesus says, you are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. Whether you're the Pope, or whether you are 
somebody away back in the corner of the square in the Vatican City listening to the Pope. It makes no difference at all. Salvation is by grace alone, mercy of God alone. And we are incapable of saving ourselves. That grates with lots of people. That we are incapable of saving ourselves grates with us all in a sense, particularly those of us in a kind of middle class, able culture where we do stuff and we see stuff happening because we do it. We're kind of hardwired to think nothing comes without hard work. And there's truth in that, isn't there? So it grates with us. It grates with religious people. Who, who often think that by religious position, affiliation, life works, acts of kindness and mercy, that in a sense saves them or at least contributes to their salvation. Now, I'm going to say this twice, and please don't go home and think there's an imbalance here. Let me be absolutely clear. Jesus is not saying that religious life, I mean, this is a religious thing we're doing. We're all sitting in a church I'm behind a lectern, we've got a microphone, we sit and we stand and we sing or not sing, and we pray, and uh, that's religious. It is. Religious practice and observance is not wrong. Nor are, and I want to double underline this, acts of kindness and mercy, they are not unimportant. They are vitally important. They are expressions of our Christian faith. They must be important because Jesus engaged in countless acts of kindness, mercy, and compassion. But they don't save us. Sitting here, or standing here, or calling someone an ordained minister or an ordained elder, or Andrew standing there singing, doesn't save us. I couldn't, could it? Being here doesn't save us. Doing stuff doesn't save us. Now, the lawyer engages Jesus in a conversation, it's a dialogue. Now, if you've fallen asleep, you wake up. Okay, I'm going to show you this. So have a look at your phone if you've got a phone or uh, if you have a Bible. Um, or, or have the passage in your, in your head that Robbie read. So just let me take you through it from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. First, the man asked Jesus a question. Now, don't look at your emails. Don't be tempted. You know, I used to get suspicious of students in Chalmers when they were on their phones during a service. But now everybody is, apart from me and Clive. <laughs> With a proper Bible, Clive. Well done. So first the man asked Jesus a question. He goes, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question. Followed by... Jesus responds with a question of his own. Jesus said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Then the man answers Jesus' question. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor. Then Jesus tells the man what to do. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, there's the logic. The man asked Jesus a question. 
Jesus responds with a question of his own. The man answers Jesus' question. Jesus then tells the man what to do. That's what happens. Yeah? And then the cycle repeats again. You think, why is he telling me this? It's important. I'll show you why in a minute. Then the man asks Jesus another question. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? I don't know how he says that. I think probably, so who is my neighbor? It's kind of smart. And then Jesus responds again with a question of his own. But in order to ask his question, he tells a parable to set up his question. Does that make sense? So he tells a parable of the Good Samaritan, and then his question, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Then the man answers Jesus' question, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus tells the man what to do. You go and do likewise. So you see what's going on. Uh, question from the man, question from Jesus, answer from uh, the man to Jesus' question, then Jesus tells the man what to do. Now, why is it important that we have that in our mind? It's important so that we understand that the parable of the Good Samaritan doesn't sit there up and on its own. It's there as a setup for Jesus' question to the man. You understand that? Yeah? Okay, you all do. It took me about a week to understand that. <laughs> um, you're fine. You've got it. Yeah. Maybe you don't. You will. It's important, though. This parable is probably... It's the most famous parable, perhaps, in the Bible, and the most misunderstood. It's not saying what people often think it's saying. Now, let me show you what's going on. Let's go back and follow through the conversation. First, the man asked Jesus a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question. He's not asking it with sincere motives. But nonetheless... If I was wanting a relevant question to sit down and look at in the Bible, that would be one, wouldn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Not kind of, Jesus, what's the finer points of Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1a? How can I have eternal life? He's not asking it sincerely. He's asking it cynically, but he is asking it. And he might be asking it cynically, but he's asking the right person, Jesus what the answer is. Jesus responds with a question of his own. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He asks the expert in the law what the Bible says. And the man answers Jesus' question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He is quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and he is spot on. He is right. Jesus himself brings these passages together in Mark 12 in response to the scribe's question, which is the most important commandment of all. Or in Matthew 22, Jesus says that on these two commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. The man answers, well, top marks. He's passed, but he's not saved. Because you could know the answer without believing it or understanding it. We have uh, three children, and I'm not allowed to talk about them at all, but the chance of them watching the Redeemer service is very small. 
Don't you tell any of them. Do you know there was an occasion in church? Do you know what? Do you have, still have a goal? No, what, what's it called in school when you have time that you get removed during the course of the week? Golden time. So I remember telling the church the week that William, our youngest, lost golden time for the third week in a row. Do you know what somebody did? They went up to William after the service and said, you naughty boy. Dear, so why have I said that out loud? <laughs> William, William, if you saw him now, is six foot three and a half. He's a big chap. Um, I don't know why, where I am now. <laughs> I don't know, I'm too tired. Um, what, I'm, what I was saying, my kids, are, they're, all, they're all brainy enough, but two of them can't do maths, but they got good marks in their exam. One of them knows how maths works. And he doesn't have to do any work and he got a higher mark in the exam. So the point is, you can pass an exam without understanding. And you can say a creed without believing. That's so important. So important. This man gets it spot on, but he doesn't, not penetrate at his heart. So he asks Jesus a question. Jesus responds to the question of his own. The man answers Jesus' question correctly, but without understanding. Then Jesus tells the man what to do. Um, he says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you want eternal life, do what the law requires. If you, he says to the man, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, you will have eternal life. In other words, if you love God with all your heart, just think, listen to what it says. If you love, if you love, if I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, and if I love my neighbor, who's my neighbor, my enemy, the stranger, and the people in my family and my friends, if you love them as you love yourself without a hint of selfishness, you'll have eternal life. Because you will have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. You cannot, though, set your affections on anything other than God for a single day. You cannot ever be selfish. If you achieve that, and this is not a, a kind of provocative statement from Jesus, like there's a carrot and there is no way you're going to reach that. He's just saying it as it is. If God is a perfect, holy God, and God sets a righteous requirement, which is perfection for fellowship with him for all eternity. We must fulfill the requirement of the law to have eternal life, which is to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that word that we often miss out, all of my heart, all of my mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do we respond at this point? Put yourself in the man's shoes in one of three ways, I think. Number one, we are humbled by the awareness of our true condition. There is no way I can do that. I just can't. That we cannot save ourselves. Or, second, we refuse to accept what Jesus says, believing that our love for God and our neighbor is good enough. Now, you could describe that reaction in lots of ways, but however you describe it or express it, it is 
what the Bible would call, I, I guess, self-righteousness, justifying myself before God on the basis of what you think, not what Jesus says. Now, self-righteousness can come in two ways. It can be the arrogance or the pompous self-righteousness thinks that, come on, I, I am quite a good person. Or it can be a humble self-righteousness saying, surely, surely God will count what I do, my acts of love and mercy for my salvation. Now, let me just say, God loves our acts of kindness and mercy. But they don't count towards our salvation. Now, the man asks Jesus another question. I don't think he's listening to Jesus or he's refusing to listen. He's oblivious to his true condition. So hostile to the notion that Jesus says he is not righteous and not justified. He thinks he loves God and his neighbor. All of that is clear from the next question. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? Or who is my neighbor? You sense a mocking, arrogant tone. I think that's right. Jesus responds then with a question of his own based on a parable. That's the point of the parable. Yeah. Now, a question of his own. First, he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in order to set up his question. Now, when we see the context, the parable is easy, I think, to understand. Throughout the dialogue, the man is trying to catch Jesus out, but Jesus is never doing that. Jesus is seeking his salvation. Jesus now takes this man and he tells him a parable, a story, in order to give him one more opportunity to understand. It's giving him another chance. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 20 kilometers, a steep, dangerous road. The danger, not just the terrain, but bands of robbers and bandits. Going down the road, a man is robbed. He's left naked and half dead at the side of the road. Now, by chance, a, piece was, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest knew from the law that he must love his neighbor as himself. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. The priest knew he must love him, whether he was a Jew, a stranger, or an enemy. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Amongst the Jewish people, Levites served to support the priests. He knew what he should do, but he didn't. He kept his distance and passed by on the other side. And then thirdly, a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay him. He had compassion. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He cleansed him. He soothed his pain. He put him on his animal. He took him to an inn. He stayed with him overnight. He paid the price for his ongoing care. Two denarii would have paid for two months of care in that inn. He promised to pay any outstanding costs. Extravagant care to a complete stranger who is the person who provided the care? A Samaritan. A Samaritan was despised by the Jews. All sorts of bad history. What's the point? 
the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable, then responds with a question of his own. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Note it's a different question. Not who is my neighbor, but who proved to be a neighbor. And if you think about it, that's exactly the right question to ask. Who is my neighbor? Oh, it's them. That's interesting. Who is my neighbor? Who proves to be a neighbor is the right question. We can talk all we like about who our neighbor is. But what matters is that we love them. If you are thinking in your heart that you don't match up to that, then you're absolutely right. Now, the man said, to be fair in him, the one who showed mercy, he couldn't answer any other way. He couldn't work up to say the Samaritan. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I've shown what it means to love your neighbor. Go and do it. And what's the point being made that the man who acted like a loving neighbor was a Samaritan? I think simply that our religious affiliation counts for nothing. I think that's what Jesus has in his mind. This man was a neighbor because he loved the man on the road and he wasn't religious like you are either. I think that's what he's saying. The priest passed by, the Levite passed by, the lawyer Jesus, in conversation, is told to go and do likewise. Now, hand on heart, what would you and I do? What do you do? What did you do last time you saw someone lying on the street? I don't think that's an inappropriate application. What do we do when we see a stranger in need of help? So we have a neighbor in where we live who a number of times has hinted to me strongly that he would like to talk to me. Until I sat down with this Bible passage, I did not respond. And it convicted me that I should go to him, but also that I do not love my neighbor as is required of me to be saved. See, it's a different thing. It's a different question. It's what saves us. If you want eternal life by doing stuff, you've got to do this every time. You've got to be the person on that road who never, ever, ever, ever passes by on the other side. See what Jesus is doing? He's trying his hardest to get this man to see But the man is self-righteous, justifying himself before God. He is lost, doomed, and not saved. Salvation is by grace alone, by God's mercy. Salvation is through Jesus alone. You see, the person who is in need of salvation 
is the person who lies on the road, but also the person who walks by on the road. And the person who helps the man on the road, because that person will not do that every day of his life. Salvation is through Jesus alone, because Jesus is the only person who has ever lived, who perfectly loves God and perfectly loves his neighbor. He alone, Jesus Christ, perfectly fulfills the righteous requirement of the law, love for God and love for neighbor. He alone is righteous and justified before God, all of which, Luke will go on to tell us, makes him the only fitting sacrifice on the cross that atones for our inability to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. So through his death and resurrection, he fulfills the righteous requirements of the law for us and in us. That's how we're saved. That's how we have eternal life. What is required of us is faith, acceptance, humility. And the difference between somebody who is not a Christian at this point and someone who is, is the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. And it becomes blindingly obscure to blindingly obvious that we need mercy. Now, as we conclude, um, I want to say two things. Firstly, to remind us of the big picture. So this is back to Redeemer Church. The cross is the heart of mission. Mission is costly. You are commissioned into Jesus' mission. His mission is speaking the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone through listening to Jesus' teaching alone. Remember Billy Graham last week? Imagine if you'd had Billy Graham last week. <laughs> Live. We have one task, he said, to proclaim the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. The second, as we conclude, and this is the final comment, I don't want you to go home with nagging doubts about something important that was not said. And it's this, so it will be said. Does this mean to say that as Christians, we are not to love people like the Samaritan in Jesus' parable loved the man left dying on the roadside? There are organizations like the Samaritans set up on the basis of this parable because this parable moves people to acts of compassion. That's not why it's in Luke's gospel. You see that, I think. But should we or should not we be moved as Christians to acts of compassion? Of course we should. Of course we should. But we must be clear. Acts of compassion will not save people. Because only Jesus can. By his grace. But when we become Christians, the righteous requirements of the law are not only fulfilled for us, they are, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, fulfilled in us, so that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit.
The Spirit of Jesus living in us means we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and we love our neighbors as ourselves when we're Christians. Except we don't. The Spirit of Jesus living in you and I now means we will never pass on the other side. But we still do. But less. And not without contrition. Although we have been declared righteous and face no condemnation and have eternal life, and although the Spirit of Jesus lives in us, making us increasingly righteous, we are works in progress until we are home with Jesus in glory. And the fact is that with the Holy Spirit living in us, even as Christians, we cannot love God imperfectly yet, perfectly yet. Even as Christians, we do not always love our neighbors. Even as Christians, with the Spirit, surely convicts us that we have one task above all others, which is to proclaim the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's, Redeemer and Chammers, using the words of Billy Graham, make sure that evangelism is the one task we are unitedly determined to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we have handled your word correctly and understood what it's saying to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to keep the main thing the main thing and to point people to the cross, to the grace of the Lord Jesus, which is alone how men and women and boys and girls can be saved. Thank you for the clarity of the Bible and of the teaching of Jesus. And help us too, Lord, as a fruit of our faith to be men and women of love for God and of our neighbors. But always, always, always willing to tell them as we are reminded ourselves that salvation is by grace through faith in the saving death of Jesus who alone is righteous. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.